Hello, welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill, and I'm not here with Steve today. I'm here with Kristen. Good morning, Kristen. Good morning, Bill. And what we're going to do today is give you the experience of what it's like to be in the field, out in the woods, and on the trail. Each month, we choose a natural history topic, research the science on that topic, and head out into the field to share what we've learned. Now, I'm not here with Steve today. He is still in the Midwest doing plant stuff. So uh, Kristen here was nice enough to agree to join us today for our topic, but I'm not gonna talk about our topic just yet because we gotta talk about where we are. It is a beautiful summer morning and we are at Rheinstein Woods Nature Preserve, which if you're a regular listener, you might know that this is where we did our episode on witch hazel uh, with our friend Jerry Rising. Kristen, you know Jerry. Yeah. So Rheinstein, how would you describe the woods here? Second growth? There's second growth. There's some of what we would call mature forest um, with maybe some old growth characteristics. And there's a, a big old beach here, but I hear it's not doing very well. Yeah, unfortunately, it is not doing well this season. <laughs> <laughs> so how old do they think that beach is? Uh, more than 250 years old. Wow. So an old growth specimen anyway. Definitely, yeah. yeah. All right, so Kristen has agreed to go on a walk with me today because the topic we're covering is deer exclosures. And you have, what, one exclosure here? Actually, we have 10 exclosures now. 10? Yes. Oh my gosh, I didn't even know that. And how long have the exclosures been around for? Well, the first exclosures were built in 1992, and we've had additional ones built since then, um, starting in about 2004, most of which are uh, have been Eagle Scout projects. Oh, okay. So we'll talk a little bit more a little later on about what the exclosures look like, how they're constructed, how big they are. But before we get too far into the episode, I wanted to give Kristen a chance to talk a little bit about herself. What's your job here? What's your role? <laughs> uh, sure, I'm an environmental educator here. So I work for the State Department of Environmental Conservation. I've been here since August of 2000. I'm wow. reaching 17 years this month, <laughs> which doesn't seem possible. And like most of the staff here, I do a little bit of everything, but primarily now as the program coordinator, I schedule all the group guided tour requests for schools and scouts and other organizations. I run our intern program, our naturalist intern program. I work on some of the website properties, and of course I do programs for the public and lead tours for schools and scouts and other groups. So you still get to spend some time with the public? I do, yes. <laughs> I spend a lot of time at the computer, but I do get to actually get outdoors every now and then. So this is great to be able to join you today. And I gotta hand it to you, because we've known each other for a long time, because when I used to work in environmental ed, I had been in the field just a few years when you started here. Yep, that's and correct. I think we crossed paths along the way, but mm -hmm. I, I have to hand it to you for sticking it out for almost two decades. <laughs> Thank you for doing what you do, because we need more people doing it, especially these days, right? That's, that's <laughs> very true, yeah. And <laughs> certainly there's been frustrations along the way with any job, but uh, yeah. it definitely is the best job, and I can't imagine doing anything else now. And as, as Kristen, as you mentioned, you work for the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. Mm -hmm. um, so we have listeners you know, all over the, the country, and each state has a different conservation department. So yep. just for brevity's sake, from now on, we'll refer to your bosses, your department as the man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or the DEC. The DEC works well. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I thought I'd start by asking you the question that I know is on a lot of people's minds. Oh, why is the DEC releasing mountain lions and coyotes across Western? <laughs> uh, just for fun, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> we are not releasing any animals. DEC does not have the staffing, the program, or the reason to do that. <laughs> we, we could edit that out if you want yeah. to. But, uh, I, I had to get that in there because being in the natural history arena in Western New York, really any part of New York, that question comes up 
surprisingly. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah, we get that uh, question, especially at the Erie County Fair. That actually does factor into our conversation today because at least when people bring this up to me that, that oh, they think the DEC is releasing predators, they think they're doing it. Why? To get rid of the deer. Right, to control the deer, the deer population. One thing that came out in my research, there's lots of ways we could be controlling deer. Uh, I shouldn't say lots of ways. There's, there's a few ways that have been tried. Predator control is one of them, releasing predators. Mm -hmm. You know, here in New York, almost every area of New York, the habitat just wouldn't support most of our big predators that historically were here to control deer, right? Yeah, that really wouldn't work in suburban Cheektowaga. Yeah, and one other point that I hadn't really thought about, even if we did release predators, if we somehow managed to convince the public that we should be releasing mountain lions and wolves in, in New York State, that the predators wouldn't stick to the habitats where the deer are the biggest problem. Mm -hmm. They're going to head for wilder areas. So. Yeah, there's too many people here. We're not going to spend a, a lot of time talking about ethics or the nuanced arguments for and against hunting or contraception or any of that. We're really going to focus on exclosures. Sounds good. And I, I want to start just talking about deer populations. I've heard people say that there are more deer now in New York State than ever. Yeah, that's correct. Certainly uh, since European colonization, there's a higher deer population. Right. And in the research for this episode, I found some people who said, well, that statement may not be exactly true because before European colonization, there may have been more. So I have a little chart here. Let's stop for a sec. So there's a little chart here that says U.S. deer population. And so for the folks listening, it shows from 1450, the year 1450, all the way to 2000, and it's showing the deer population. Mm -hmm. So trucks along pretty evenly at 1450 to 1500 around 45 million mm -hmm. and then there's a big precipitous drop around 1750 so as Europeans spread across the continent you get a big precipitous drop till around 1900 you have less than 5 million white-tailed deer in the country and then in the 20th century since a lot of state conservation organizations were trying to repopulate mm -hmm. deer we have an equally or even more precipitous spike upwards to where now it's estimated between 35 and 40 million deer, dropping a little after 2000. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the websites that I found looking at historical deer populations back into the 15th century, they didn't seem to be very reliable or concrete <laughs> estimates. <Probably> so <laughs> uh, it doesn't seem that we have a real clear idea. We know there yeah. were a lot of deer before European colonization, mm -hmm. but we're not exactly sure. Now, if any listeners out there have some good research back numbers, we would please share those with us because we would love to share those with the audience. Um, so while we can't say for sure that there were more deer before European colonization, we can say for sure that over the past hundred years, deer populations have really spiked. And the one thing that I came across a lot of pro hunting websites are trying to say that, you know, deer populations are decreasing and um, deer really aren't overpopulated because there were probably just as many deer before European colonization, but the only problem with that argument is that there were a lot fewer people back then. So even if there were 40 million deer, white-tailed deer uh, in the U.S., they were a lot more spread out than they yeah, had. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and, and I think that's a, a great point, that it's, it's the concentration of deer that's the issue. That's the problem. Um, because one of the issues was abandoned farmland made great deer habitat. Right. So with that human impact, that uh, really increased available habitat for deer, but it was also great habitat for building houses and stores and malls. Yeah. So and we removed all the predators. Yeah, and so then they're the concentrated predators. on these, these smaller areas of land. So that's the issue that we have. It's a high deer population for the amount of land there is. And the DEC, I was actually on their website 
and they have some really great information on deer populations. I didn't know this, but they said for the past 25 years, target populations have been set primarily through public input, through just asking the public mm-hmm. how they feel. So I imagine a lot of the hunters give input yeah, into that. Yeah, that. you know, the, it is a state agency, it is state land, it is, you know, wildlife is kind of a state resource, so yeah. it is it is a public process. Yeah, so they're, they're taking a lot of public input, but then on that same webpage, they did say changes in those target levels have not adequately reflected deer impact on habitat, or in some cases kept pace with population growth. Mm-hmm. They're listening to the public, even though what the public is requesting may not be ecologically speaking what's best for the habitat. Yeah, so. well, and, and it's certainly you have to think about where hunting is allowed. We can't hunt right. here at Rhinestein Woods, <laughs> we do, um, and, and, and anywhere in the town of Cheektowaga, there's no hunting or discharging of firearms. So sure. in an area where there's a high deer population, you can't have that hunting control that could help the population. And again, the whole idea of, of hunting deer, even for uh, ecology-minded, conservation-minded mm-hmm. reasons, a lot of people aren't happy about that. Yeah. So yeah. I talk to my university students a lot about it, and uh, I get a, a good number of students each semester who just say, I just don't like the idea of killing anything. So it's a very touchy subject. Definitely. Um, so <laughs> let's move on, though. Let's see how this is portrayed. <laughs> <laughs> and. and and I, this is very touchy for you being a state employee, I'm <laughs> sure. Yeah. So why don't we move on to at least the demonstrated effects of deer overpopulation. We've removed the predators. We've created perfect a perfect scenario for deer. We mm-hmm. have these this fragmented forest, these patches of woods for them to hide out in mm-hmm. during the day. And then in the evening, they can come out and graze without fear on people's gardens and little landscaping, right? Oh, absolutely, yes. We've had (laughs) neighbors complain, oh, keep your deer on your property, as if a four-foot fence would keep them in. (laughs) They can just hop right over there, right? No problem. (laughs) Some people probably don't know, I mean, how high does the fence have to be? Uh, Usually seven to eight feet high. Yeah, isn't that crazy? So even your standard six-foot fence is not high enough to keep out a really determined deer if they're really hungry. (laughs) It's hard to imagine that, uh, (laughs) you know, I'm six foot, a deer could leap right over me if it really, really wanted to. There was a nice tasty shrub on the other side. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so when you do have high concentrations of deer, uh, the research that I found said that the results could be there are declines in height abundance and the reproductive capacity of woody plants as well as herbaceous plants, so the green plants on the forest floor. And this is coupled with increases in the abundance of grasses, ferns, and exotic species, especially invasive exotics. Uh, And we'll get into the more details of that in the studies Mm -hmm. I found along the way. I think you can see the impacts right here where we are. You can yeah. look through the forest, and that's what I usually say. You can actually look through the forest here. It's striking if you go to the Adirondacks or Allegheny State Park, even not that far away, that uh, there's an understory that is blocking this view. But here you can see ferns, um, you can see grasses, and uh, some invasive species, some native species here yeah. as well. But it's primarily ferns on our forest floor um, because the deer have eaten that understory layer. So And they're not really uh, into the ferns. Not into the ferns, no. <laughs> they're not, not digging so the ferns. Not into the white snake root. <laughs> is white, white snake root, is that native? It is native, yeah. Okay, all right. Which sure. you figure the native, they're the native deer don't eat it, but the cows ate it and that was the problem. Uh, <laughs> the non-native deer. The, non, the non-native deer ate it and that was the problem with the milk sickness during the pioneering days. So. That's right. Yeah, so for those that don't know, uh, white, white snake root, it's uh, an understory plant. I find it grown along trails, mm-hmm. grows about 18 inches tall, like it's a, a nice inflorescence of white flowers right on the top. And that was the cause of milk sickness. It's a really great story, the it detective is. work that went into figuring out why people were dying. Yes, uh, and it and was sick. the plant that killed Abraham Lincoln's mother. That's right. I didn't hear that. <laughs> that's ringing a bell. <laughs> All right. 
So uh, we've talked about deer populations. I've just touched on the effects of deer overpopulation and, and I'll get into those more as we go through the research. But I did want to pe give people just some basics about exclosures. An exclosure can really be made of anything, right? Mm -hmm. um, typically the exclosures that I've seen, the ones I've, I've read about in my research, they're fencing. Yeah, again, you need that seven to eight foot height. Oh, there's one there's right one here. Right. <laughs> That's right. where we're gonna... Most of ours, we have uh, four by fours posts and then um, two layers of like a, a green wire, like a garden fencing sort of attached together to get that desired seven to eight foot height. And most of the exclosures we have are 25 by 25 foot. We do have two 50 by 50 exclosures. All right, so this is, we're looking at one right now, folks. There is probably a 10 inch diameter tree inside it, but then we see growing within the exclosure, but not outside the exclosure, lots of little maple saplings. Exactly, yeah. So this exclosure was built in 2001 as one of the Eagle Scout projects, and it is striking at this time of year where you can look in the exclosure and see small trees. There's maple, there's uh, sugar maple, American beech, black cherry, and if you turn around outside the exclosure, you're not seeing anything within that sort of height class. So the, the tallest ones are probably about 12 to inch, 18 inches high. Wow. We did, in some of the exclosures, including this one, plant some native species, some sugar okay. maple, so our exclosures are not a strictly research-based <laughs> system. Sure. The, ideally, that'd be great if you had controls and exact exclosures for study, but our purpose here is, really isn't a scientific study. We know the deer are having an impact. We know that where you keep the deer away, things will grow. Right. So for us, it's a, protecting some trees, giving them a chance to grow, so maybe you know, 30, 40, however long down the road as the trees get tall enough we could remove this and then we'll have a patch of some forest regeneration here. And I, I think for the people that um, maybe didn't listen to our Witch Hazel episode, we should let them know that Rheinstein is really this island of green surrounded by suburbia, right? Uh, if you look at an aerial photo, we're pretty much landlocked. We yeah. have are almost 300 acres and we are adjacent to a town park that's a little over 300 acres, Stiegelmeyer Park. But that park has also baseball fields, football fields, picnic yeah. areas, a lot of play, playground. Yeah, yeah, so it's more managed, but they do have some mature forests adjacent to our borders. But we're surrounded by busy roads. We're surrounded by, uh, you know, houses all around. So it's really an island of habitat in the middle of suburbia, which is why it's so attractive to the deer population that we have. So they're really sort of just funneled in and concentrated in this area. So again, for people who maybe didn't listen to our previous episode, at Rheinstein, we're in a suburb of Buffalo, a little southeast of Buffalo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not too far away, but definitely suburban habitat. And I imagine that if people do come here, one reason is because they like seeing the deer, right? They do, yes. <laughs> there are a lot of people who like to see wildlife. And, you know, <laughs> well, I think we're all a bit jaded because we know the ecological right. impacts of the deer. And like, oh, it's another deer or too many deer. But it is something when you have kids who've never been here before. Kids are from the city of Buffalo who haven't had this opportunity and they see a deer and how excited they get. And you remember, yes, that, you know, this is an exciting animal to see. It's a beautiful animal to see. We just don't want to see quite so many of them because we <laughs> like other things besides deer, too. And, and it's not their fault. Uh, it's human impacts that have increase their populations right. but you know we also like to have birds and amphibians and reptiles and things like that that could and be impacted trees. by them and we like to have little trees yeah. you know we're l looking down the road you know it might be okay for us but 150 years down the road we'd still like to have people be able to come to Rheinstein Woods and see trees and see woods. There's a term that I was taught a while ago uh, the term ecological wholeness and uh, when you're managing a property mm -hmm. if that's possible if you're concerned about ecology. You try to move it as close to ecological wholeness as you can. And, you know, deer are like candy. Yeah. It's a great thing, it's wonderful, but <laughs> too much of it is a bad thing. Exactly, yep, yep. <laughs> All right, I wanted to talk about 
a couple studies because this topic of deer exposure was actually surprising to me because Steve and I will pick a topic and then, you know, we go into that topic mm -hmm. with, with certain expectations. And most often I'm floored by what we find, mm -hmm. that what I expected to find is not usually what I find. Whereas in this case, not to, you know, stop anybody from listening at this point, <laughs> but what I expected to find was mostly uh, how things played out in the research. Mm -hmm. There were a few nuanced effects. And as always, there's some really interesting things I found, like deer can have an impact on spider populations. Oh, wow. um, um, how plants respond to herbivory, that's something we'll get into a little bit later too. But typically, most of the studies that I found, the results that you would expect played out. If you mm -hmm. keep deer out, you're gonna get more trees uh, coming up. So one term I feel I need to define right now is the term recruitment. You'll see that a lot if you spend time looking at ecological studies, mm -hmm. especially dealing with plants. Are they in an area? Are they not in an area? So just to give people kind of the dictionary definition, recruitment occurs when juvenile organisms survive to be added to a population, uh, usually a stage where the organisms are settled and able to be detected by an observer. Like right now, we have recruitment within this exclosure of beech, maple, and then you said some wild black cherry too, right? Yep. So definitely some of our climax species. Mm -hmm. One of the first studies I looked at was in the Northeastern Naturalist. Have you ever seen that journal? That, was, I don't think I that is a great one. I would recommend it for anyone living in the Northeast. Comes out quarterly. All the studies have to do with things in our area. So that was probably the first journal that just as a layperson, I said, mm -hmm. you know, I, I want to spend more time looking at scientific studies. And I subscribed to that one and I really enjoyed it a lot. So there was a study in 2013 that looked at four deer exclosures for 20 years. Now their exclosures were four hectares. So I had to look this up because I always forget how big a hectare is. So a hectare is about as big as a football field. It's something okay. like two acres and change. So, or I'm sorry, not about as big as a football field, as big as a soccer field. We are, okay. we are in North America, so uh, <laughs> about as big as a soccer field. So they looked at pretty large exclosures over a long period of time, and they looked at three different stages in tree growth. They looked at uh, seedling abundance, then small sapling, anything that was one to five centimeters, at DBH, diameter of mm -hmm. breast height. Do you remember what that height is? 4.5 feet. Okay, see, I, I knew you'd probably remember. <laughs> I always forget. So foresters, that's typically where they measure uh, the girth of a tree at diameter of breast height. So, and then they looked at large saplings, so five to 10 centimeters mm -hmm. at four and a half feet. And what they did find is that there was significant difference in small sapling count. It was four time, 4.1 times greater within the exclosure, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then they did say, that seedling height was on average 2.25 times greater. So the seedlings were higher, mm -hmm. the small saplings were more abundant. They said they did not find a significant difference in the larger saplings, but they, that may have to do with the time frame as well. They yeah, it's studied, only 20 years. It's only yeah. 20 years. And that's a limitation I found a lot in the research. And actually a lot of the papers mention that. When you do have deer exclosures, you usually have a small sample size mm -hmm. of exclosures. It's very difficult to find a site with 500 deer exclosures. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and to get a long sampling time mm -hmm. can be difficult. I tried to limit my most of my research to people that studied exclosures 10 years or more to try to get a, a good sample size. Uh, the one strange thing in that particular study was that the small saplings were more abundant mm -hmm. except for pawpaws and mockernut hickories but I couldn't find in the research any uh, hmm. why they thought that might be so I don't know enough, enough about pawpaws I, I know nothing about pawpaws so <laughs> I, <don't come> <laughs> I will make no guesses I don't come across them enough and then there was a, a another study I looked at this was actually done on U.S. Forest Service land and this one was great I was happy to find this one 
because they looked at over 13,000 plots. Wow. All across <laughs> between 1983 and 2013. So you got a nice long stretch mm -hmm. of time, you have a huge sample size, and they pretty much found that what you expected. Yeah. They show that deer have strongly depressed sapling recruitment in all taxa, so all tree species, mm -hmm. except firs and spruces, hmm. except abies and picea. Those aren't as palatable to deer, so yep. it makes sense that that would happen. That was probably the only study I found with such a high sample size. Most of them are pretty yeah. small. And I'm sure you know, when you're dealing with scientific studies, sample size is huge. Because you can have, if you have a small sample size, you can have two studies kind of looking at the same thing and just mm -hmm. have totally different results. Yeah, definitely. So, the one other thing that I found really interesting, but what I expected, is deer and their impact on the spread of invasive species. I don't know if our listeners know this or, or how much you know about it, but I had heard that deer assist in the spreading of invasive species. And for me, it wasn't an easy connection to make, mm -hmm. like, why would, would deer do that? I mean, do you have any, have you heard? No, I'd I'm love to hear about it. Yeah. <laughs> Tell so, me more. Well, that's good. <laughs> invasive species typically aren't as palatable to deer. Mm -hmm. When deer are moving through the forest, they're going to be choosing the natives usually mm -hmm. and leaving the exotics behind. So they're just allowing the exotics to thrive. By their preference. Yeah. So uh, there was one study in 2016 that looked at non-native woody species and then they picked one native herbaceous herbaceous mm -hmm. species uh, herbaceous excuse me <laughs> herbaceous species and then they looked at the results uh in ex inside exclosures and outside exclosures mm -hmm. and it pretty much played out like you would think it would outside the exclosures the invasive species mm -hmm. exploded the the natives didn't and then inside the exclosures the opposite happened except for multiflora rose so inside the exclosure multiflora rose was more abundant. Interesting. Yes. Now, um, as I was going over my notes this morning, I found a little note where I'd written to myself that I needed to read the rest of the study and find out why that happened, <laughs> but I didn't do that. All right. <laughs> to so, be continued. Yeah. So if you're listening to this and you want to know the answer, why would multiflora rose be more abundant inside the exclosure? I'm going to look that up and I'm going to post it in the episode notes. A little cliffhanger. Uh, exactly. You've got to have people coming back. <laughs> That's right. Maybe I should have done that on purpose. Yeah, you did do it on purpose, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but just kind of uh, hypothesizing. I mean, I'm thinking maybe uh, multiflora rose, obviously it's going to be spread by deer or uh, by birds. Yeah, yeah. So the exclosure is not going to stop them. And then maybe the natives just can't compete with it. So it just has a chance. Yeah, I mean, it does have aggressive growth. So maybe that's it, um, that it's just growing more aggressively. And maybe. As far as I know, so. multiflora rose is not that palatable to deer, so I don't think the deer yeah, would be Yeah, not that a, I'm aware. I mean, we, we certainly have it uh, here along the trails, and I don't think the deer are helping us at all with that. Yeah. Um, but it does make sense in terms of the selective herbivory that, you know, we've had a, have had an issue with garlic mustard as an yeah. invasive species along the trails, and you know, deer bad. don't like it. I always say deer don't like garlic flavor. So. Too bad deer don't like garlic mustard. I know. Yeah. No. Now, this is a little bit off topic, but have you seen any evidence of the disease that's moving through multiflora rose? No, I didn't know about that. Yeah, there's, there's, I can't remember if it's a fungus. There's some factor that's moving through and affecting, impacting the multiflora really? rose, causing it to die. And I've actually seen that in my yard, which isn't too far from here, because hmm. every year I was having to cut back multiflora rose from where my yard hits the road. Yeah. And over the past couple of years, I haven't had to cut as much. And just last week I was looking, and you can see it, it's wilting. Really? It just looks very unhealthy. And I've had other people tell me that they're seeing it in their population. It's just multiflora affecting multiflora rose, not like native roses and things? Or not, not, sorry, not, not 
there are some native roses, sure, but mostly yeah. like garden roses, thing, right. that kind of thing. No, as far as I know, it is impacting garden roses oh, as okay, well. So it's... But I don't want to talk out of turn, but yeah. I, I remember when I was reading about it, um, people were upset that it was impacting multiflora rose because some people actually raise multiflora rose for herbal reasons. Uh, for the rose, rose hips. hips yeah. yeah, so some people were saying, we need to stop the spread of this because it's impacting our multiflora rose. And I remember that stood out to me like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I have no love for it. I did a no. field study where we had to count vegetation stems so yeah. around bird sample plots and like stems it's of multiflora rose. Like on your bed, it's catching your clothes. Yeah. I call it multi-evil rose. It's, <laughs> <laughs> you can cut that out. No, uh, no. Terrible, <laughs> terrible stuff. So we actually, that's interesting. Steve and I did as a plug for a past episode, we did a, uh, an episode on multiflora rose and we called it multiflora blows because it's the worst. <laughs> Catches your clothes, it, yeah, just stems of it. That was the worst. All right, you've already talked a little bit about what the exclosures, what we're seeing here, but you have more information you want to share about the exclosures here? As I said, we haven't, this has not been a rigorous scientific study with sure. a large sample size as compared to the, the study that you referenced. And the two original exclosures were constructed in 1992 prior to when I started working for DEC, and there really isn't any documentation about why those sites were selected. There was no control plots picked at the same time, so I'm not sure what the motivation was. Other than, Someone was you know, just like, hey, let's, yeah, put let's one build up. them to look at the impacts of, of deer. I, I don't know. So, But it is nice to have the older ones too, and we can take a look at those to compare what's growing in them versus the more recent ones. So, as I said, it's not been a rigorous scientific study here. The spots since then that we've selected have been some spots in the mature forest, some areas where we would like to try to encourage regeneration. So, for okay. the most part, they've been into the mature area near sugar maples, beech trees, cherries, that sort of thing. So, so we can try to protect some of the, you know, natural seedling regrowth. Um, that would otherwise be eaten by the deer. So are we able to s go see others? Sure, we'll head over to the one of the 1992 ones, one of the old okay. ones. Okay. So at that time, 1992, I'm not sure if you already said, at that time this was DEC property? Yeah, the land was donated to the state in 1986. Okay. And, you know, we can talk a little bit about the land originally belonged to a man named Victor Reinstein, right? Yeah, correct, Dr. Victor Reinstein. He was a local medical doctor and attorney, and the family owned a lot of land in the town of Cheektowaga, about half the land in Cheektowaga. So, and he um, put in a lot of ponds, right? He did. This was um, his own kind of private nature sanctuary. He put in the um, gravel trails or gravel roads at the time, and, and that's what we use as our walking trails today he built the pond so we have 19 ponds and wetlands for Holy. wildlife he planted oh. like 30 to 40,000 um, evergreen seedlings larch and uh, scotch pine and uh, Norway spruce um, because when he uh, bought Norway the land spruce. yeah <laughs> it does have some benefits but, <laughs> but when he bought the land sort of the northern portion was cleared farmland so if you look at the 1920 aerial photos you can see that area was open so he planted um, the, all those tree seedlings and so now that is our our evergreen population <laughs> that we have so. your evergreen forest that's right <laughs> so please tell me he didn't plant multiflora rose or uh, tartarian honeysuckle uh, <laughs> not that I'm aware of but it's here okay. anyway whether he did or not because <laughs> yeah. I know in you know the 50s around that time yeah. those were big conservation plannings yes, the state DEC was encouraged, encouraged yeah. people to do <laughs> the it man. Yep. yeah yeah encouraged people to did do they, that do they encourage people to plant Norway spruce too I don't know probably I think they still sell it in the um Saratoga tree nursery. Oh, okay. It's not an invasive. Tip. No, it's not yeah. an invasive. It's considered one of the naturalized species. It's not spreading out of control and crowding out native species. Yeah, so folks, if you see 
stands of spruces and the the branches are very droopy that's how i identify norway mm -hmm. spruce usually and it does so have wildlife value certainly for shelter for owls and other birds sure sure and cones for red squirrels all right so we're at another exposure this one is smaller this one is a bit smaller yeah. um i don't know the exact dimensions it might be more like 20 by 20 yeah a little bit smaller and the, am i wrong or is the fencing shorter as well the fencing might be a little bit short. This okay. looks maybe more like seven feet. If you're six yeah. feet, probably closer to seven. The other one is probably closer so to a, eight feet. a very determined deer could <laughs> theoretically clear this. Theoretically, but, you know, hopefully not. <laughs> yeah, they get a um, running start. Yeah. <laughs> this one has metal posts. Uh, they look like, kind of like metal street sign posts yeah, as do. opposed to the uh, wooden posts that we've used since then. Um, but a lot more trees in, in here. Yeah, a lot more trees and, and taller trees. So this um, has been 25 years? That sounds good. Okay. Do the math. 25 yeah. years, yeah. So <laughs> since 1992, yeah. Um, so yeah, it definitely is dramatically different. And I think sometimes people walk up and they say, well, that's all it is for 25 years still, but we're under the forest canopy. It's still shady here. Right. So things aren't going to grow as rapidly as they would if there was more sunlight. And 25 years in the life of a forest is... Yeah. yeah, it seems long to <laughs> us, but in our, in our lifespan it is. But if you're looking at a mature forest that will have beech trees, uh, sugar maple trees, three to four hundred years old, this yeah. is just a little blip. So, so there's, I mean, there's a beech, a young beech tree, looks like a or ma young maple tree in there. Mm -hmm. That's probably a good what nine, eight, nine feet tall. Yeah. Yeah, and then a beech beyond that. Yeah, and thinking back in the time that I've been here, this is definitely, you know, there are taller trees, more more small trees in here, and it's it's leaf, more leafed over within the the exposure. Yeah. So this is also the only place that I've ever seen trillium in the woods. There, and I didn't get here this spring, but for years there were two red trillium that would be here. Yeah. No place else. Well, I'm not surprised. Deer, deer do love trillium. <laughs> deer like trillium. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, where I used to work at at Beaver Meadow, the nature center. In one portion of the preserve, there's this sea of wild leeks and it's one of the only spots on the preserve that you can find trillium and we don't know if it's true but we used to joke that the leeks wild onions for people that don't know are protecting the trillium <laughs> makes sense you know if yeah. they don't like garlic mustard they don't like garlic and onions they're not going to venture yeah. in there and, and eat the wrong plant we don't so. know if that's true but but yeah you can definitely see the difference here yep and again this one has american beech it has sugar maple it has black cherry similar species that are growing in here but definitely in taller size yeah again those climax species mm -hmm. so uh, one question that just kind of popped in my head do you see a difference here in terms of the spring ephemerals outside the exclosures and inside the exclosures do you have a large spring ephemeral display here do you get a lot of the hepatica and spring beauty and trout lily not a lot we do have it but it's not the carpets that you'd see again okay. from the deer population and i can't say that we really see that that's been impacted with the exposures okay. it seems like it's more the tree species in there but again it's not that's sort of anecdotally not from scientific study sure. you know we do get we get some hepatica we get more trout lily probably spring beauty is the one that we have the most of okay. for our spring ephemerals but and you would imagine if the deer population was at more natural levels here you'd have a much higher yeah yeah, yeah. I, there was one time when i planned a wildflower walk spring wildflower walk scouting <laughs> and then when i went to the walk a few days later stuff was gone <laughs> so it had been ingested <laughs> and it wasn't the ephemeral part of it it was that it had been they eaten, were really so. ephemeral they were very ephemeral yes <laughs> <laughs> well i wish i had planned that segue but um, this is a perfect segue because i want to talk about now some of the more nuanced effects that that i came across because going into this, I figured that inside the exclosures, you'd have more trees growing. Mm -hmm. And I guess in my head, that's kind of as far as I took it. But some of the studies I found, there was one from last year. They set up some deer exclosures in Connecticut, and they looked over a 15-year cycle. And what they found is that exotic species cover 
was higher in grazed areas, so that mm -hmm. makes sense. So where the deer are, there's more exotic species, they're eating the things they like better. But that inside the exclosures, you had less herbaceous cover. So you did have fewer spring ephemerals inside the exclosure. Mm. And that kind of jumped out at me like, why would that be? I would just think that inside the exclosure, there'd be more of everything. Yeah. But think about it. As I read more and more, I'm like, oh, it makes sense. If you have more trees and shrubs going, you're gonna have less herbaceous mm -hmm. cover. What they said is our results suggest that deer exclusion had contrasting effects on species richness depending on the plant life form. Mm -hmm. Overall richness of both exotic and native plants declined with deer exclusion. So overall, mm -hmm. if you're looking at woody plants and herbaceous plants, there's less species richness inside the exclosure. And I think for a lot of people just looking at that, generally speaking, oh, that's yeah. bad. Yeah. You know, there's less biodiversity. But in terms of ecological wholeness, in terms of mm -hmm. how our forests operated before we removed predators, that was more in line with what was happening here mm -hmm. before we came along and, and altered the environment. So other studies I found backed this up. There was one from 2016, again, just last year. This was in Great Smoky Mountains. They looked at several exclosures over about 20 years. So what they observed was an increase in the density of woody stems across all sites, but the abundance of some small stature spring herbaceous species hmm. went down. But what they did say is that large stature, the, the taller mm -hmm. herbs, when present, they tended to increase in abundance. Hmm. So if you were tall enough <laughs> to kind of <laughs> keep pace with the trees, you were doing okay. Huh. I find these digging into these topics, that's what I find interesting is that these nuanced effects yeah. that, oh, it's not as straightforward as we think. I was just going to say, it's never simple. <laughs> no. Um, never simple. Our friend of the podcast, Matt, who does the In Defense of mm -hmm. Plants podcast, he's fond of saying that ecology is this huge gray area <laughs> and people just love things to be simple yeah. and when you're dealing with this kind of stuff. No. It just never is. Why don't we walk a little bit? Yeah, it's, we can head towards, there's a, one of the bigger ones, the 50 okay. by 50. So while we're walking, uh, I'm going to talk about two studies I found on seed banks. Okay. So for our listeners out there, if you're not familiar, when someone's talking about seed banks, they're just talking about the seeds that remain in the soil. Really, these provide a resource in case there's disturbance, in some kind of uh, environmental catastrophe where the above ground plants are decimated for some reason. The seed bank is what's in reserve, what plants are gonna return. And some researchers wanted to look at, well, how do deer, deer exclosures impact seed banks? Mm -hmm. Does it have an impact on what's going on underneath the soil? Or is it just impacting what's above the soil? So there was one in 2014. This was actually in Ithaca, New York, so not too okay. far away from here. They looked at six fenced enclosures, 15 by 15 feet. And they found the typical impacts above ground, but they found that it did have an impact on seed banks that you're getting more exotic species in the seed bank hmm. and fewer natives. So even underneath the soil, the deer are having an impact. So they said that deer browsing has long-term and potentially reinforcing impacts on secondary succession. So it's slowing succession by selectively consuming native perennials and woody species and favoring the persistence, persistence of short-lived introduced species. Hmm that continually recruit from an altered seed bank. So I wanted to see, you know, are there other studies that back this up? And, mm -hmm. and I did find other studies that, that did. There was one 
from a study in Japan, actually. And so I'm going to throw some numbers out here. All right. This study found that when they looked at seed bank composition, and they looked inside the exclosure, they found 29% of the seeds were palatable. Mm -hmm. So the ones that deer liked. Yeah. And 43% were unpalatable. Those were inside the exclosure. Well, that doesn't add up to 100. So <laughs> maybe the rest was some intermediate. But then outside the exclosure, only 1% of the seeds were palatable species. Hmm. So, I mean, a, a huge drop within the exclosure. There were 29% mm -hmm. are things that deer like to eat. Yeah. And outside, it was only 1%. These researchers, they said that for the soil seed bank outside the exclosure, mm -hmm. it has very little potential to aid in the recovery of floor vegetation. Wow. These impacts are going to be felt. For, for quite a while. Yeah, yeah. Not good news, not just for the plants we're seeing above ground, but for below ground as well. All right, now I just have a couple more things. So I hope I'm not boring you. <laughs> no, no, this is very interesting. You know, I do not do have a chance to read journals, do much scientific research, so this is interesting. You know, the exclosures here have been more sort of protect some trees, but not sure. looking at the, the impacts like that. It's, it's pretty mm -hmm. fascinating. So no one is kind of actively recording data from the exclosures? No, the, the only thing that we did do in 2011, we had an intern who did surveys of the exclosures. I think the first one we visited, you could still see some strings there. She had divided them into smaller plots and was- Oh, I did see um, a string in the last one. Yes, yeah, she was identifying the species in there and looking at what was above two feet and below two feet and looking at the variety of species inside the exclosures. The idea was that would happen every five years, but- Didn't happen. Didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one of the other uh, interesting studies I came across talked about jewelweed. Mm. So I'm sure you have that here. We do, yeah. Some people may know it as, as touch me not in the impatience genus. Now, as an environmental educator, have you ever done uh, jewelweed popcorn? I have not done jewelweed popcorn. So, I just have fun popping the seed. So when you find a, a nice patch of jewelweed uh, with a group of kids, and again, if, if you haven't come across this plant, folks, the, the flowers develop into these pods that as the seeds develop, the pod starts to dry and pressure builds up. And then if you touch it, the, the pod's going to explode and send the seeds flying. So if you find a nice patch of jewelweed with lots of pods, you get a nice long stick, put it in there, and then just wiggle it all over the place. And the seeds just go flying all over like popcorn. We don't have any patches that big here. Uh, probably, okay. from the deer. probably from the deer. <laughs> but I will have to try that in my backyard. <laughs> My daughter loves playing with jewelweed. Oh, yeah. Okay, the study I found looked at jewelweed, and it looked at two different plots. So there were some jewelweed that grew up within exclosures, so it had been protected from herbivory, mm -hmm. and then some that had been exposed to herbivory. And then they removed the exclosures because they wanted to see the, the response. Mm -hmm. And what they found is that the plants that had been protected from herbivory, they saw a reduced lifetime fruit production. So the ones that were protected, they saw a 57% drop in fruit production. The ones that hadn't been protected, okay, so the ones that had been browsed by deer, they saw a 20% drop. The, the drop they attributed to Two mechanisms are correlated in this increased tolerance. Increased number of flowering days and increased fruits per flowering node. So those jewelweed that had kind of been exposed to herbivory, mm -hmm. they produced more flowers and they flowered longer. Hmm. Why would that be? 
You That's say, oh. a great question. <laughs> you're, you're like, oh, they're used to it, right? Yeah. But that's when I was reading it. I'm like, oh, well, they're used to it. So that's yeah. what happened. But then the researchers brought up the point. Well, yes, maybe they're kind of evolving tolerance mm -hmm. or maybe the ones that were protected lost oh. the historical tolerance. Yeah. That if they had grown up with deer always around, they just have this tolerance. And it, by yeah. being protected, they lost that tolerance. It went away. Hmm. And then um, I, I mentioned earlier in the, the episode that there was a study that looked at spider abundance. Mm -hmm. They looked at how does the presence of deer affect spider abundance. They actually came up with something called a Web Scaffold Availability Index, a WSAI. So they went through a forest and anywhere between half a meter to a meter, they looked at sites that would be good for building mm -hmm. webs and they measured that. And uh, what they found was that where deer were excluded, spider webs were twice as abundant and that there were more sites available, seven to 12 times greater. Wow, okay. that's a big... And prey availability was lower, probably because there were more, more spiders spider. <laughs> there feeding on them. So deer just don't impact tree species. Yeah. It has a ripple effect throughout everything. And then the last study that I'll share real quick is, there was probably my favorite study that I came across it was called The Effects of White-Tailed Deer on Vegetation, Animals, Mycorrhizal Fungi, and Soils. This study, it said, usually when someone's looking at deer and deer exposures, they're just looking at how does it impact trees, mm -hmm. how, did it, how does it impact herbs. So this one really tried to take a more comprehensive look. And really what it found is that most of what all the other studies were saying hold true. Um, you're going to have lower tree recruitment, more exotic species. Mm -hmm. It's going to have soil compaction with more deer. But what they did say is that it didn't seem to impact underground organisms as much. So salamanders and earthworms hmm. didn't seem impacted, at least in this study, through the presence of deer. Uh, and then the mycorrhizal fungi didn't seem to be heavily, imp significantly impacted either. Um, so at least that's some good news, that if we can figure out how to control deer or minimize deer populations, that at least you have that fungal network will that's hopefully there, be yeah. intact, the earthworms and the salamanders. But they did find that some other terrestrial organisms like mice and other, mm -hmm. those were yeah. impacted uh, negatively. Their populations did decrease. So like with most things, it's complex. It, yeah, definitely, nature's going. complex and yeah. it's, it's definitely a balance and not an easy solution. So we're at another exclosure right here. This one is probably as big as the first one, right? No, this is 50 by 50. Oh, so this, this is even is bigger. The, we have two that are the, the larger size here. And there's a little door in one corner. Mm -hmm. So um, hopefully the deer don't figure out how to... If they do, we're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and this one has been here for how long? Uh, this one has been here since, let me check, uh, 2007. Oh, okay. So not that long. Not too long. But years. <laughs> we still have, and there's still a lot of ferns in there. There is a lot of ferns in this one. And this is one where, that had ferns when it was put up. So, you know, hard to avoid that. They were removed at one point. Oh, really? A lot of them were removed, but they've come back. It was not a regular thing. I think it was one season. A okay. lot of ferns were removed, again, to allow some of the seedlings to grow. And um, So they were probably still present in the seed bank. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> but um, I, I see some tulip trees coming yeah, up. Yeah, that is one thing we've been finding a little bit more, tulip trees. So there are a few in this exclosure. Otherwise, we have more of the American beech. This one has some small hemlocks, and I think those were planted, though. Okay. The, this site was selected because it was not far from a hemlock tree, so it was, again, to try to preserve some biodiversity, wanting to protect something sure. in that area. So, and but, hemlocks, they are part of our 
forest around here. They're yeah. Hardwood associates. And, and deer will eat them. So <laughs> that is true. <laughs> so that is why we're protecting a few here. So the hemlocks that are in here, I believe, were planted just based on the sort of size, the, the similar size. You said this has been here for seven years. Ten years. Ten 2007. Years. Oh, that's right. 2007. My math is fuzzy. <laughs> um, so in ten more years, we'll come back and record a follow-up episode and see if the ferns are still here. Sounds excellent. <laughs> <laughs> That's everything I have. Do you have anything else that you want to add? Anything you want to plug? Um, if people are in, find themselves in Western New York, they should come check out Rheinstein Woods, they right? They should. It's Buffalo's backyard wilderness. We're about uh, 15, 20 minutes from the city of Buffalo, about 15, 20 minutes from most places. And the nice thing about it is that it's very accessible because our walking trails are the gravel roads that Dr. Reinstein created. They're typically about 10 feet wide. They're pretty yeah. level. Being in Cheektowaga, we're a pretty level, flat area. So it's pretty accessible for strollers and wagons and scooters, wheelchairs. And we even now do have a little um, scooter that people can borrow. Really? If they have mobility wow. issues, they can borrow that to use on the trails um, during and our building hours. To come and hike here, there's there's no fee, right? There's no fee? Yeah. No. Just um, ask for a donation. Yeah, we just ask that folks sign in and out. And uh, as I said, the trails are open every day from sunrise to sunset. Our education center building is open weekdays from 9 to 4.30, Saturdays from 1 to 4.30. Our program is available. If you Google Rheinstein Woods, probably the easiest way to find our website and um, see the programs we offer every week. And that is for all ages. R-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N, right? That's correct. That is it for this episode, folks. I want to thank Chris. Ooh, hang on, we got to stop. <laughs> what kind of butterfly is that? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> He's not it's stopping. It's black. It's not landing. I you don't think it was, it was a, a swallowtail? Swallow yeah. Was... He's coming back. It looks like it might be it a swallowtail. It looks like it might be a swallowtail. I think so. He's looking a little ratty, though, near the end of the season. Yeah. Uh, there we go. So we have a, a black swallowtail. I think so. The black swallowtail and the spice bush, I always have to look up uh, to remembering who's who. So we have mostly black wings yep. and then a little bit of yellow spotting along the... Uh, and a little bit of bluish yeah, tone towards the bottom. Yeah, towards the, the bottom edge of the wings. All right, well, that's one reason we record outside. It's for <laughs> great sightings like that. Folks, thank you so much for listening, but I want to give a big thank you to Kristen for giving up part of her day to come out and join us. It's great to get away from my desk. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to thank our patrons... Diane, Ken, Scott, Matt, Bethany. We named the dog Indy, Paul, Molly, Rob, Alyssa, Dan, Dave, Chimera, Kimberly, and Lee. All of those folks have been supporting us through Patreon. We want to give them a big thank you. If you would like to support the podcast financially, you can do so through Patreon. And I want to give an extra special thank you to two folks that recently gave us one-time donations, Dan and Amanda. We really appreciate your donations, Steve and I both, we were just overwhelmed with your generosity and because of your support, we will be able to purchase new and better mics to make the show even better. So if Patreon is not your thing, you don't want to do a monthly donation, we have added to our website a one-time donation. Feel free to support us that way. Uh, you can also visit our website at thefieldguidespodcast.com to access all our past episodes. If you have an idea for an episode or a question, feedback you'd like to give us you can email us at thefieldguides at gmail.com you can follow us on facebook you can check us out on twitter at at fieldguidespod or you can follow us on instagram at fieldguidespodcast and one of the best ways that you can support us if you want to be like my wife and not support us financially um, that's okay maybe money's not your thing you can leave us a starred review or you can even better write us a review on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you might use. That helps increase our visibility, 
and just gets the word out uh, so more people can hear what we're doing. So Kristen, thanks again. Thanks for coming on. And thank you folks for listening. We'll see you next time.